Open your Bible again to Psalm 36. It's where we left off after this morning's pretty heavy message. That song that we looked at, just such a sinister beginning, you know? It's a song that talks about answering a simple question that we're all confronted with, who are you? And I think some of you may have come to terms with the answer to that question in a level or a layer you weren't familiar with yet. I think everybody would admit that they're a sinner. Most of you are churched people. You know Bible answers, but I wonder if you really understand the extent of your sin, the depth of it. That's what this song is about, and it's a song of, it's a song of contrasts, which is why I just couldn't finish it this morning. I, I had to wait for tonight to give you the other side of this coin. You understand contrasts? They're all around us in life. The opposite game, black, white, salty, sweet, clean, fire, Great hair. It's called bald. And for making fun of it in the Bible, a bunch of kids got killed. First Kings, check it out. Contrasts. Life is full of them. And the psalm has one that's shocking. Remember what we looked at this morning. The question was, verses 1 through 4, who am I? It's a question about mankind, about men and women, about young people, about old people. There's no one who misses this uh, target. There's no one who doesn't uh, identify with this description. Verses 1 through 4 describe uh, the answer to who you are with these kinds of words. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. It flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans and plots wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. And what we learned in answer to that most important question to identify yourself in God's definition definition is that we are total rebels, total rebels, and we have undergone moral corruption to the core, total rebels, and that's the sinister beginning of this song. The hardened sinner is portrayed with willful and deliberate disregard as you look at his life without God. He assumes in his life that there are no consequences for his sins. And this song explains in these opening verses why the world we live in is the mess that it is. This song explains why people are hurting and dying and suffering worldwide. It's because sin entered God's perfect world and its corruptive effects touched every part. This is an accurate depiction of who you are without God's grace. Raised in a Christian home, you're totally corrupt. Grew up in the church your whole life, got Awana badges for days. You are a willful sinner. You go to a Christian school, 
You don't hang out with bad kids. You are depraved to the uttermost. This is the Bible's description of mankind. You're homeschooled. You stay pure. You live in a bubble. I don't know. Guess what? None of it has changed the fact that inside you are a sinner in total rebellion and opposition to God as soon as you enter this world. A sinner by nature and a sinner by choice. You didn't have a say in the matter. You didn't start with perfect moral innocence. That little baby version of yourself, though chubbier and more diaper clad, was a wicked little thing. Cute, but wicked. And that's the hardened sinner portrayed. In his willful and deliberate disregard for life under God's supposed authority, justifying your existence and showing that sin really is your God. Sin that was parasitic in your infancy has grown to a full-blown overlord in your life. Sin used to be a parasite, a virus as it were, in you. And then as you tasted sin's pleasures, and as you experienced the effects of your rebellion against God and of your inherited sinful nature from your father Adam, you began to realize that sin was not only parasitic, not only a virus inside of you, sin had become a tyrant and it rules over you. And though you may go a week without struggling with that one particular sin, you find repeatedly that you fall into into it, and though you thought you had this sin dead or gone, but still you hear that voice, sin's voice, talking to you, speaking to the ungodly person within your heart. But you're starting to get a biblical understanding of mankind. One author, Thomas Torrance, said this man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. You see, your sin, looked at compared to other sinners, might not seem so bad to you. Your sinful nature could be explained based on your circumstances and compulsions and desires and choices. And, and maybe as you see these stages that sin takes in your life, verses 1 through 4 could be seen as a series of stages. The self-deception of sin speaking in your heart, turning towards this insensitivity to sin, uh, this lack of a dread of God we saw in verse 1, uh, which turns to an inability to do good at all, uh, that your, even your best works are corrupted by sinful tendencies or motives or by pride, which moves to a commitment to delight in sin. Sin is no longer just master, but you live to sin. Sin brings you pleasure. It pleases you. And then from there, you have an inability to reject or hate sin. You can't stop. You're not able or willing. And that's not enough because as Mr. Torrance said, 
Man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. And that's the contrast that this song brings. That's the other side of the coin. That's the black and white. That's the salty and sweet. It begins with this depiction of you answering this question that's so important. Who are you? What's your greatest need? What defines you? Well, it's sin. Sin defines you. Though created in the image and likeness of God, a noble creature made in God's image, meant to worship God. You have rebelled against him and now sin owns you. Sin sin has you in its grasp. You belong to sin and sin has defined you. But we haven't even gotten to verse 5 because it's in verse 5 that there's this switch, this contrast This sinister beginning, the hardened sinner portrayed as one in total rebellion and one covered with immoral corruption without a single word of transition comes verse 5. Thy loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. What? Where did that come from? After this repeated looking within and looking around at the sinfulness of mankind in your heart and in society, the ungodly path of life depicted so clearly, then all of a sudden, everything changes and the singer of this song, the author of this song, stops looking within, stops looking around and looks up up to heaven and says convincingly and contrastingly, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. What a picture. What a contrast. He's answered the question, who are you? And now he's going to answer an equally important question about someone else. Not another sinner to compare you to. Not the rest of society on some kind of grading scale. But instead, he looks directly to God in heaven. He tries to grasp, to find language worthy to describe God's nature and God's attributes. Your nature, your attributes, a sinner by nature and choice, a willful rebel, and and a rebel, an angry, uh, reprobate rebel against God with no fear of God in your eyes, delighting in iniquity. And now he looks to heaven and shows you God. Why? Why? Before we look at at this description and depiction of God's character, why? Why the contrast? And I think that there's good reason for this, and I think it's a reason that's hopeful and helpful. Where sin abounded, grace abounded more. Or, Jesus did not come to call the righteous, to save the righteous, but to save sinners. You see, a realization of your state 
And then a look at this holy, awesome God is so enriching and so telling. And so the question that provides us with only an indictment and only God's judgment and only the rightful curse that is upon us, who are we? Our lifestyle's evil, our conscience hides sin, verse 2. Our speech is vile and deceptive, verse 3. Our life is, uh, have ceased to be worthy of God's honor, verse 4. Our plans have set an evil way or path or road. The foundation of our life is no dread of God. Our whole entire being is marked by sin. And then God, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Now we look up. We look up above the mess, up above the fray, up above this world that's been so stricken and sickened by sin, up out of our own desperately wicked hearts, out of this throat that's an open grave, out of these blasphemous mouths, and we hear from God's revelation. We hear from God Himself who He is, and it's a very different picture than man, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. The question, who is God? The answer, two verses with two parts each. The first verse, verse 5, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. He's looking up to God and what is he to compare God to? God, God who spoke the world into existence. God who could only be compared to the infinite sky, the seemingly expansive universe. Uh, The psalmist in the Psalms repeatedly looks to creation to grasp language worthy to describe the greatness of God. The psalmist will sometimes reach with seemingly desperate measures to try to grab onto an image of mountains or mighty trees or a roaring ocean to compare God to something that we experience and see and understand because God, friend, is invisible. God is spirit. God can't be seen by your human eyes. He's infinite. He's beyond your comprehension. So maybe, just maybe, if you can look at a mountain or this week there's a great choice out there that he employs in the next verse called the sea or the ocean, maybe if you can just for a moment stop thinking about yourself and stop thinking about advancing what you want and what you need and what matters most to you and think for just a moment that there's something bigger than you in this universe. Just as an example, that massive ocean It's much larger than you. And if you have any sense at all, you'd stand on the beach and you would tremble. You would tremble at the immensity of the ocean. You would think about the stuff in there. Killer whales, orcas, and baby orcas. And other kinds of orcas. I went to SeaWorld yesterday with the kids. All I can think about is orcas. Wake up in the night sweats. Orcas everywhere. I shouldn't have watched Blackfish before I went. Big deal. Whales three, humans zero. Keep score. We'll get them in the end. Sorry, was that not sensitive? Don't worship fish. Okay, next. They're mammals. Because they breathe the air. Never mind. Stand there and look at it. Look at that vast ocean. The kids asked me today, we're riding Andrew's golf court like it was stolen, and because it was, and 
we went down to the bluffs and looked at the ocean. They said, where does it stop, Dad? Where does it stop? Something called the Mariana Trench. That's the deepest part of the ocean floor. It's, I don't know how many feet, 35,000. You don't have your cell phone, so you can't fact check it. Wikipedia, 35,000 feet deep, something like that, below sea level. Where does it stop? Well, you could take that path to Hawaii and then Japan and then Asia and I think you could keep going under and around and find Australia and eventually run into more oceans. Where does it end? Well, eventually it ends, but God doesn't. And you could look like the psalmist does at the highest heavens, at the stars, and you could take an astronomy class, or if you're me, you could take astronomy twice in college. What? I, maybe I really liked it. <laughs> I got an F. And <laughs> my second time through, I remember the professor saying, you guys think space is pretty. It's deadly out there. And that was one of the only true things I think he said the whole semester. But the immensity of space is just a tiny little comparison to the immensity of God. It's like comparing a kitty to a lion. There's something in common, but not much. It's comparing the heavens, the heavens to God in their expansiveness and extent and the Psalms love to do this and they love to try to take the praise of God so there's the portrayal of the wicked verses 1 through 4 and there's the praise of God and in the Psalms praise is always expanding it's always stretching out it's always going forth it's trying to help you understand who God is and and why he's such an immensely beautiful and valuable and wonderful being. Even the tiniest of the Psalms, Psalm 117 says, praise the Lord, all nations, praise him, all peoples, for his loving kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting, praise the Lord. That's the kind of language that worshipers use to depict Praise being expansive because God is unending and infinite and expansive. But because of our sinful tendencies and our sinful human heart, our praise isn't naturally like that. Instead of expanding and being infinite like God is, our, this is big boy class, stay with me, in big girl class. Instead of expanding and including all nations and all peoples and all places and having our praise be so wide and so massive as to match God's excellencies. Instead, our praise of anything diminishes. It does. Whether it's the girl that you're sitting next to, you follow her around, and then on your 19th wedding anniversary, he didn't do a fireworks show. What's up? What happened to the 17-year-old game? Your praise diminished, unfortunately. Some friends of ours have this cabin, they call it, uh, on a lake in California. 
And the first time we went, I'm like, should I bring a sleeping bag and bug spray to the cabin? And we roll up to the place, and it's this shocking mansion. I mean, shocking. Cabin? That was a lie. That is not a cabin. That is a shocking mansion. <laughs> and we go to it, and it's a shocking mansion. It has a dock and a fast speedboat outside and butlers every... Okay, not butlers, but it's really, really a nice cabin. Cabins, you have to, like, kill bugs and get the spider webs out. Spiders wouldn't dare go in this place. It's beautiful, and they, they told me a story about some people who borrowed the cabin and a tendency they have. You know, they're real generous folks. Let, let borrow the cabin and... Somebody will borrow the cabin, and let's say that they are blown away like I was by this place. I mean, this is awesome. They get to borrow the boat, take the jet skis out, have a great time, sleep in these huge, comfortable beds. They don't have king beds in this cabin. They have despot beds, like really big rulers. Huge. And they, they borrow it, and they're really grateful, and, and they write... I mean, when you get home from some act of generosity like that, you write a thank you note that you wouldn't believe. You buy paper imported from Egypt, and you use a fountain pen like John MacArthur, and you just write, like in fancy script, thank you, dear friends, for your use of the cabin, mansion. And you write this note, and you thank them profusely. You call them every week afterwards. How much I enjoyed that vacation. It was so awesome. And then summer rolls around and folks will say, you know, we could go to SeaWorld or we could ask them if we could use the cabin again. Let's do it. And this time they go back to the cabin and it's just not, you know, you know what you're expecting. You, you've seen it before. So you lose the, oh, it's a shocking mansion. Now you're just like, what up? Bloop, bloop. Open the house. All the doors open. Automatic button. And... You're like, man, you know, it's, uh, it's good to eat on gold again. Yes. Mm, gold plate. He scratches, but you just throw him to the thing. S story's gotten weird. So the second visit, though, it's, it's, it's great, but it's not. You know, you're used to it. You've been there. You know, the, and the boat, the boat wasn't as clean. And, you know, the, the, one of the jet skis seemed to kind of stall a little bit, but... It was so awesome, and it's, you can't beat the price, you know, you're free. And, and this time, you, you shoot them an email when you get home, you're like, thanks so much for the cabin. I feel like it's like a co-ownership co here. What up? Thanks for the cabin. Loved it. Great vacation. And then the third summer rolls around. You don't want to go to the San Diego Zoo and see a giraffe with two necks or whatever they have there. And <laughs> you think, well, maybe we we'll go to the cabin. And this time, you go back to the cabin, and you're like, you know, I think I just think it could use a refresh. It's you know it's nice. I mean, this is nice and can't beat the price. It's free, you know. But I wonder if it's time to get a new boat. I mean, they got cash. Let's get a new boat. This thing's it's like three years old now. Let's get a new boat. You know, if I if I had a cabin, a mansion, I'd get you know ten boats. And you start to diminish. And that time the folks don't send a thank you note. Instead, they send an email saying we'll take next July Fourth weekend. No problem, right? See how that's kind of an extreme example of ungratitude and diminishing praise, but that's the opposite of what the psalmist wants you to do. 
He wants your praise, enjoyment, satisfaction of God to only increase and abound. And so he uses language worthy of God, tries to grasp something in this universe that you know, maybe in an experiential way, in a, in a visual way, more than you know God. So he says, the extent of the heavens is comparable to your steadfast love. He's going to give four qualities of God. You should write these down with a little description. Number one, steadfast love. Steadfast love. Or your Bible may say loving kindness in your translation in English. It's one of the most important words in the Old Testament used to describe God. It's a combination of concepts. It involves love, yes, love that you're familiar with, love that's affection, love that is emotional, love that is committed, but it also has this concept of a covenant, an agreement, a deal to enter into a binding agreement with someone, just as if you were going to buy a car you would have to sign paperwork or give money and a receipt. In the ancient world, you made a covenant, a deal. It was binding. It was official. That's the kind of word that's used to make this word steadfast love. It's the concept of love that is committed, love that is unbreakable, love that will always be there in equal quality. It's loyal love. That, my friends, is the first thing he says about God. And if you knew God, it would be the first thing you would say about God too. You wouldn't speak merely of God's love for you. If you were to know God, friend, savingly, you would not just speak of his love for you. You would speak of his loyal love for you. And the reason you would speak that way is because of verses 1 through 4. Our love is often tainted. Our love is often diminishing, getting smaller, less significant, less grateful. God's love is relentless. God's love is loyal. God's love is constant. God's love is committed. God's love continually is there. It's steadfast. It's not moved. It's firm. It's loyal. It's faithful. It's devoted. It's dedicated. It's dependable. It's reliable. It's constant. That's why the psalmist says this first about God before he mentions anything else. And it's why he'll talk about steadfast love again in verse 7. It informs this poetic structure to press on you that the most important attribute to this singer about God in this moment, thinking about his own sinfulness and a sinful world is not God's holiness first of all it is not God's infinite nature first of all it is his loyal love nothing is more precious to a believer than God's loyal love because the fact that God loves us is incredible it is unfathomably good but the fact that God will always love us that nothing can stop his love that his love is unbreakable that his love is faithful that his love is loyal and dependable and reliable and constant that makes his love good better than good it makes it steadfast your steadfast love, O oh Lord, extends 
to the heavens as far as your eyes can go and beyond into the stars. That's God's steadfast love. He will never break his word. He will never change his mind. He will never stop his commitment. God always will always be loyal to those he loves. And then the word faithfulness, it's paired together in verse 5, and these words often are. Psalm 89, Psalm 136, over and over again, they go back and forth, back and forth between steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. The word faithfulness simply means reliable. It means firm. If your feet had a good grip on a trail, that would be a faithful grip. That's the way the word is used. It's a word that means sturdy. God's faithfulness is his dependability. And it goes to the clouds. He's not saying that his faithfulness is less than his steadfast love, which goes all the way to the heavens. It's simply a hyperbolic way of saying God's steadfast love and faithfulness are in a pair. And they're going as far as your eye can see and beyond. There is no limit to them. There is no way to properly measure them. God's steadfast love, his faithfulness are insurmountable insurmountable this is the nature of God keep in mind the contrast from this morning we are not our love is not loyal it's fickle our love is not dependable it changes from day to day our love is not committed it's often false It's not always dedicated. It's not always dependable. It's not always reliable. It's not always constant. And as to our faithfulness, have you kept all your promises? I mean, some of your lives have been the subject of much pain and suffering because of broken promises. Your parents made a promise to each other, and some of them didn't keep that promise, and it tore your family apart. You know what a world looks like with a lack of faithfulness. Look all over the place, whether it's in your home or whether it's politicians making a promise on the campaign trail and then not keeping it in office. This world is full, littered with broken promises. I mean, how long did you live before you used that powerful schoolyard epitaph of the pinky? The pinky what? The pinky promise, you know. Why? Where'd that come from? It's because everybody in the schoolyard's a fat liar. You got to bring out the pinky promise to get the truth. And it was often accompanied by a powerful lyric poem in English. Cross my heart and hope to die, stick a finger in your... Or my... I don't know. I always stuck it in the other person's eye. I thought that was a better promise. It's because the playground's full of liars. There's got to be some way to assure you've spoken the truth and so you come up with weird stuff like the pinky promise. That's what we're like, not God. His faithfulness and steadfast love are to the clouds. What else? Verse six, your righteousness, O God, is like the mountains of God. The Hebrew people could attach in their language the word God to something to magnify it, to make it the superlative, like good, better, best. This is a way to go beyond best by putting the word God on it. So if you had a mountain, little foothill, then you had another mountain, pretty big burly mountain, and then you had a big mountain, Mount Everest, 29,000 something feet, and then you had a God mountain. Cool. Huge. 
That's what he uses there. God's righteousness, his moral perfection, God's commitment to always doing what is right. If verse 5 is God always keeping his promise, always staying steady and constant in his love, verse 6 is that God always does what is right. That's why he's called righteousness. And his righteousness is like a mountain. Compare that to verses 1 through 4. What's your righteousness like? The prophet Isaiah would later say, our righteousness is as filthy rags. God's righteousness is like the mountain of God. The largest possible mountain you could imagine. That's what God's righteousness is like. God's righteousness, his moral perfection, him always doing and choosing what is right, is a massive mountain. And that mountain, my friend, if you read verses 1 through 4, is an obstacle between you and God. The righteousness of God, Martin Luther said, was the blockade between him and God. It's what kept him from knowing God because he knew he was a sinner. And when you hear your righteousness is like the mighty, greatest, powerful, most high, the mountain of God, this massive mountain. I hope you see it like it is. God's righteousness stands between you and heaven, a mountain you could never climb, no matter how many ropes and boots and Sherpas and llamas and helicopters and everything else you had at your disposal. A mountain so massive, it is the righteousness of God. And it's so different than you and I. We are not righteous. We are not morally pure. We are so corrupted and God is perfect. And this massive mountain stands between us. You thought this morning was all the bad news, but it goes on. Your judgments, or the word justice, second half of verse 6, it's like the great deep. So he takes the biggest mountain you could imagine and then the deepest sea you can imagine. He said that your loyal love and faithfulness is insurmountable. Now he says your righteousness and your judgments are unfathomable. Your righteousness and your judgments are unfathomable. The word judgments would come to be synonymous in Psalm 119 with God's word. God's judgments or his justice were the decisions that he made. Whatever decisions God has made are the things that happen in the history of this world, in the history of the Bible when the, the flood would come. That was a decision, a judgment of God. And they were likened to the word of God. They were compared to God's promises. They are like the great deep. They're unfathomable. That's how true they are. And then this sentence, man and beast, you save or you preserve, oh Lord. Can you think of an instance in the Bible where God saved men and beasts? Beasts are creatures. Sir, with the hand. You're right about Noah's Ark. Remember, people put it in their nursery up in there. How many of you had Noah's Ark in your nursery when you were a baby? You remember that? Weird, baby. Had it up in there, little baby Noah's Ark, little baby giraffe like me in a BMW. <laughs> little elephant hanging out the side. Little bird with a branch. Bird's back with a branch, let the animals off. What are you guys still doing on there? <laughs> little artwork on there. That is the weirdest thing to put in a nursery in all the Bible. It'd be better to put a leprous colony in a nursery <laughs> than Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is not cute. Noah's Ark is super scary. Noah's Ark, contrary to Hollywood, is also not aliens. Just in case you're up in that. 
Noah's Ark is the greatest instance in the Bible of God's awful judgment. God kills the entire population of the world, man and animals alike. But in his mercy, he spares eight human beings and two of each kind of animal. Why does he bring that up? Because the biggest act of justice or judgment in the world, history, to that point and to this point, was the flood. And instead of using sinful reasoning and saying, God, that's not fair. Why would you kill all those baby orcas and gorillas and grasshoppers and babies and women and children? The psalmist sees it from God's perspective, knowing that God is always right, that all his judgments are fair, and that every single life belongs to God and not to you. You are not your own. God made you. God owns you. God is over you. And he looks at that great incident of judgment, and what does he see? Salvation. Preservation. You see, looking at the character of God will inform you how to think about the rest of the world. It will inform you how to think about history. It'll inform you how to think about your life and your decisions and where you go to school and who you're going to marry. If you understand the character of God, if you live your life based, rooted, grounded, solidified in God's character, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his judgments being insurmountable and unfathomable, you will too say things like, the Lord preserves life. What a savior we have. And that transitions this song to some practical matters. He's still praising God, but now he praises not just the character of God, but the blessings and benefits of the character of God to those who are part of God's family. To those who are not associated with the wicked in verse 1 through 4, at least not anymore. And what you see in verses 7 through 9 is a life blessed by God's protection and provision. A life blessed by God's protection and provision. Look at verse 7, what he says. And this takes all these theological, a word that simply means who is God, and makes it personal. Steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, judgments. Anyone can say those four words. But only if you understand who God is and only if you understand what a great Savior He is can you really say and mean verse 7. How precious, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. He goes right back to that first attribute he listed because it's the most important, because it's the most valuable, and states it in a personal way. Your steadfast love is precious. It's rare. It's prized. It's valuable. It's costly. Do you think of God's attributes like that? Or are you bored? Are you over it? Are you so mad at your parents that you just think, I just want out? I just want my own life? Because you'll get out from under them eventually. And then you'll be mad at your boss, and then you'll be mad at your wife, and then you'll be mad at the doctor when he tells you you have cancer, and then you'll stand before God. 
and we'll see how it goes when you're mad at him. You will not be bored with him on that day. But if you live your life in a way that looks at the character of God and rightly answers the question, who is God? Then you will come to say, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. You will value what God values. You see, God who is so immense to be compared to the heavens and the mountains is now imminent, close, touchable, understandable. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. More benefits. Verse 7, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. That's called zoomorphism. Who makes up weird words like that? It means that if anthropomorphism is when you compare God to a man, then zoomorphism is when you compare God to an animal. Again, God is so far beyond our grasp. His being is so unsearchable. You have to grab at things that you understand. And one thing you understand if you're an urban chicken farmer like me is birds. I got some in my backyard. Eleven birds. I used to have 12 birds that I got from Rourke, who used to be an urban chicken farmer. He gave me his 12 birds. I left the coop open one night, and like a million mountain lions or a demon or something came and killed all my chickens in the night. Probably wasn't a demon. Maybe a demon in a mountain lion. And it was a bloody scene in the morning, and I picked up feathers for approximately six months. And then I bought some more chickens, and I didn't leave the gate open anymore. And I watch over my tender flock, and I learn their ways. And my chickens are my girls. <laughs> and I don't eat them. I mean, I'll eat the chicken. I'll eat a rotisserie chicken right now in front of all of you. I'm getting hungry. <laughs> and what am I talking about? My chick, my girls. <laughs> Sup, ladies. So... This is, my, this is my flock, and these are my girls, and they're laying hens, okay? They're formulated for making much eggs, and we eat the eggs, and my kids are so sick of eggs. Uh, when they move out of our house, they will never eat an egg again. I promise this is going to be true. And my flock, my birds, I've learned something about them. They get something called broody. You heard of this broody? It's in Wikipedia. You could learn about it, or backyardchickens.com. And real website, it's in my favorites. So my girls, they get broody. You know what it means? They get their little egg stash going, and one of my girls will get broody. It means she sits on her eggs, and she just does this. And I try to go get the eggs, and she says, and she locks down. And if I put my hand under her, she goes, and she gets my hand. And I have to go toe to beak with this girl when she's broody because she's super protective. She's trying to hatch them. She doesn't understand. So I have to physically remove aforementioned lady from her eggs and she fights me and she squawks and she broods and she broody and she'll sit there. I've had a chicken sit there for days. Won't drink water, won't eat food, brooding. And she just looks at me and says, Get off. 
Why borrow that phrase? Because it would have been familiar to Israelite chicken farmers like me. And so he says, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings, but nothing can move God off of you. If you belong to God, nothing will make those wings move. It's not a mood he falls in. He has in common with these birds the fact that he will do anything. He will go toe-to-toe with anyone to protect them, and God never loses. That's why Jesus says, my Father has given them to me, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. God guarantees that his love is a protecting love. It's one of the benefits of knowing a God who has steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, and perfect justice. Verse 8, they feast, humans feast from the abundance of your house. Well, what does that mean? What kind of a house does God have? Guess. It's, no, it's not like the cabin. No, heaven is sometimes God's house. But think about the Old Testament. What would God's house have been? It's the tabernacle or the temple, right? Like today, we're, we're like, you listen to Christian rap, they're like, let's go to God's house, yo. We're talking about the church, right? A place of worship. That's, that's, that's what he's talking about here. He's saying that we are sustained by God's best provisions. Not simply that God gives us food, and he does. But ultimately that God satisfies us spiritually. You see, though you are created to be an image bearer, and though you have rebelled against God and your desires are twisted, you still have a soul. You still have a spiritual inclination. It's why people uh, climb mountains and talk to gurus and do this and take yoga and try to connect with stuff and eat too much yogurt and every other false religion in the world. Because there is an innate spirituality in us because we are people who are eternal. Our souls will live forever. And that longing and stretching and confusion can only be truly satisfied not in any false religion in this world. Those are just band-aids on a massive leak of this uh, concept of this longing for spirituality, longing for something eternal. The only way that you'll really satisfy and really feast on that which is lasting and that which is truly spiritual is in worshiping God God's way. And so the psalmist knows this and says, we feast from the abundance of your house and we drink from the river of your delights. That is typical language in these songs that say things like, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, O God. We are not calling you to a mere moral reformation at this camp. We are not asking you to work on your language and clean up your act and be nice to your baby sister. We are asking you to worship God, the God who created you for himself. We are asking you to abandon your pursuit of morality or being the good kid at school and instead be a radical devoted disciple of Jesus who lives to do God's will and lives to worship in God's house and lives to drink from the river of God's delights not actual water not actual drink but something that will satisfy the inner longings of your soul and that something is God himself and so he answers it in case you were not clear in verse 9 for with you is the fountain of life 
in your light do we see light. And when I first read that, I said, huh? I get the fountain of delight. It's another picture. God meeting all our needs. God satisfying spiritually. But what is in your light do we see light? And so I asked a book written by somebody named Ross. That's all I remember, Ross. I said, Ross, help me. In your light do we see light. That sounds like something Yoda would say. (laughs) What does it mean? And Ross, help me. In your light, do we see light? Tomorrow it may be a perfectly clear day at noon. And you look up at the sky and it's almost blinding with all that blue on the horizon and blue in the sky and light is everywhere and your head is red like mine for obvious reasons because it's so bright. But in God's light, that light tomorrow at noon is barely light at all. It's like a tiny flashlight with the batteries running out. In your light, do we see light? Change it, and it's still true. In your truth, do we see truth? Do you know something true? You know the prime root of 42? I don't. But if I did, I'd say that's true. But when you encounter God's truth, now that is truth. What about righteousness? In your righteousness, we see righteousness. Sure, you have some idea of righteousness. You've kept your promise a time or two. Maybe your grandpa was a really great guy, but his righteousness is nothing compared with God's righteousness. In your righteousness, we see righteousness. What about God's joy? God is the most infinitely happy being in the universe. He is always and eternally satisfied in the Trinity. In his joy, we see joy. Have you ever been happy? Happy for a moment? Have you ever laughed? deeply, well, that joy is just a shadow, just a glimmer, just an image of the happiness that we'll find in heaven. In your joy, we find joy. In your illumination, we find illumination. In your life, we find life. All of it is true when it comes to God. So the psalmist says, in your light do we see light. Light in the scripture speaks of truth. Light in the scripture speaks of having your eyes opened. If you really want to know the truth, if you really want to live as God intended you to live. You will only find the answers in God and in God alone. In your light do we see light. That's what it means. And so these characteristics of God have turned into practical blessings that God's people experience. And then the song is over. It just has a couple lines left, 10 through 12. And if we had the question, who is man? And the answer being a total rebel, an immoral, corrupt version of his former self. And then we have the answer to the question, who is God? And we would say, the constancy and reliability of God's steadfast love is immeasurable. And the benefits because of it to those who know him, the psalmist would have us end with a prayer. And that's verses 10 through 12. It's a prayer, a prayer of confidence and listen to the words and learn to pray this way. 
Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Confronted with your sin and confronted with God's character, what is it that you would ask for? The psalmist knows what to ask for. More God. God, show me more of yourself. Steadfast love again. Your favorite attribute of God, because what kind of songs would you sing to God if his love were not steadfast? But because it is, because he does keep his loyal love towards you, you say continue your steadfast love to those who know you. Continue your righteousness to the upright of heart. You see, the psalmist understands that in that contrast between God and man, that by faith God has made a way, by sacrifice God will make a way, that there has to be some way to get over that insurmountable mountain of God's righteousness. And the psalmist has experienced it. He's not waiting for Jesus. He's not waiting for the cross. He speaks in terms to say, by faith he has grabbed it. You see, David got the secret and he He knew that he could not fix himself. He knew that his sin owned him and that his judgment was due to him. And he understood that God was perfect and God was holy. But he also understood that God saw him rightly through someone else. And though David didn't know the entirety of the Messiah's promise, though David didn't understand what happened on that cross on Calvary, though David didn't understand all the complexities of of Jesus being risen from the grave. David trusted God's word. David trusted God's promise. David believed God and like Abraham before him, that belief was counted to him as righteousness. And friend, what you need to pray is that God would love you and that you would know him. That his righteousness would be applied to your heart because it's your only hope of being rescued from your sin. That God himself would extend to you his loyal love. That his righteousness would cover you and become your standard and that your pride wouldn't keep you from God. That your selfishness and your lust, verse 11, let not the foot of pride or arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. David knew that the only thing that could break him from the presence of God, the only thing that could keep him from the presence of God was not past sin, but it was to rebel against God all the more and to reject what God has done. And so he ends this song. He ends this song by reminding himself and reminding each one of us in verse 12, the fate that awaits those who reject Jesus. Verse 12. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down unable to rise. That's a solemn warning. He closes with a solemn warning about death. And he tells you to pray that you would continue in the faith. That you would continue to look to the steadfast love of God. That you would continue to look to a righteousness that is not your own. And if you do not, you will not go to hell because you lusted. You will not go to hell because you lied. You will not go to hell ultimately because you lived for yourself. You will go to hell forever.
you will lie fallen before the evildoers with all of them because you rejected God's perfect son. So don't. Lay down your pride and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone to save you and get to know God in a way that you will experience his steadfast love. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for helping me through this song and I pray that you would help my friends to see it, to see this truth and to hang on to it and see that the Bible is clear that the only way to you is through your son Jesus. That that righteousness that's an obstacle becomes a gateway a bridge, a door in the death and resurrection of Jesus. May they take him by faith. And then may we be steadfast, immovable, loyal, faithful, committed, devoted, dedicated, dependable disciples of Jesus. Having our sins washed away by his blood and having a righteousness that's not our own put on us. God, do work in hearts now as we sing. Do work in hearts by your spirit. Do sovereign sin confronting, lust defeating, pride crushing work in hearts of students. And draw them, we ask, to yourself, O oh God, for your namesake, for your glory, so that your praise would not diminish in us, but would extend forevermore to all eternity.